Welcome to another episode of In the Name of Service, a podcast committed to sharing the untold stories of those who selflessly serve. Each episode features an interview with men and women who have been called to a variety of service-focused roles, such as the military, law enforcement, ministry, volunteering, and more. You aren't likely to know the names of the individuals you meet here, but our hope is by the end of our time together, you'll not only know their stories, but possibly be inspired to write your own in some way. Humble in nature, but strong in character, these everyday men and women showcase what it is to truly be a servant. We're glad you're here. Now here's your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Thank you so much for joining me today for another inspiring episode of In the Name of Service. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. As a United States Army veteran and operational psychologist, I've spent my career working with military and law enforcement units, conducting in-depth interviews with hundreds of individuals who are hoping to earn their place on high-risk, high-performing teams. In most cases, they've already put years of grueling physical and mental work in just to get a chance to serve and sacrifice more. And that type of selflessness is special and, I feel, worthy of recognition. While each person's story is unique and every path to service different, their goals are similar. To do something more, to be part of something bigger, to make a difference. These difference makers were the catalysts behind this podcast, and it's my privilege to share their stories with you. And today I get to introduce you to Maria. She is a former colleague of mine, a social worker. We worked at the same unit. We were on the most amazing team, honestly, I've ever been on when I look at my career so far. Her ability to connect with people and just be a good teammate is unmatched. She's also so unique, and I just cannot wait for you to learn more about her. So, Maria, over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Maria, and I grew up on the West Coast in the shadow of Mount Rainier. I moved to North Carolina years ago with my husband, who's active duty in the Army. I'm the dog mom of two rescues, and I love being outside. Uh, I'm very creative. I like painting and art. I love making gifts for people and cards. I also enjoy, like, gardening and playing music and listening to music. And I'm very passionate about service members and supporting them in whatever journey that they're on. You know what I might have to do is show some of your paintings in, in <laughs> some of these posts that go out. They're just beautiful. Yeah. And um, and there's meaning behind like every color you choose and the symbols yeah. you choose to put in the in in there and it's they're just incredible but describe for us so now I'm gonna have you take us way back to little Maria yeah Uh, describe for us what you think about when you think about your upbringing and some of the maybe like seminal experiences that helped shape you into the the woman you are today yes I was always outside and I think my parents instilled drive and service in me from like a very young age Um, always encouraged me to do stuff that made me uncomfortable or to try sports or they never told me really no in a lot of areas. Like I have this very vivid memory of being, she was probably like five or six and my dad's a master carpenter. And so he was always working with wood in the garage. And I one day decided I wanted to learn how to carve wood. So I remember sitting at the end of our garage with like a sharp chisel chiseling wood and like my dad's coming out like what are you doing kid and I was like working on wood and he was like oh okay see and that was kind of the end of it and he still has I carved a fish out of some uh, cedar 
and he still has it hanging in the garage. But like my parents just allowed me to fail and try new things. And at no point did they ever really tell me that, oh, have you, that's not going to work. It was always like, oh, she'll figure it out on her own, I suppose. And I have an amazing supportive family. Like I remember riding my bike to my aunt's house or being little going down to my grandma's house who was miles away. And my parents just let me be an independent kid. Anything, any hobby that I wanted to learn, like I had the freedom to do that. That makes so much sense knowing you. I wonder what it is about them that allow, like that made it okay for them to, you know, like have you not be a helicopter parent and let you try things. And not that they chose that you would have a knife in your hand when you're five years old, but you know what I mean? Like uh, just be comfortable. It's like they trusted you already, you know, like as a person. Yeah. I asked my dad about that years later, like, why did you let me be so independent? And he was like, you just didn't need what other kids needed. And we gave you what we thought that you needed in that moment, or we supported you in the way that we saw that you needed support. And I think they also let me have that autonomy where if I needed something, I could ask for it. It was immediately addressed. But if I if I could figure it out on my own, they let me do that. And I, I think that created the person that I am in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Being resourceful and trying new things and not being afraid to fail. How old were you, do you think, when you discovered that social work would be a good fit for you? Man, that's a that's a story. So I didn't really know much about social work and I never also didn't really know what I wanted to be after high school. I took a gap year and I worked uh, two jobs and when I finally went back to school, I, I went to school at Pierce College to get my associate's degree and I took a lot of art classes. So I majored in like photography at the time. And so I was always in a dark room or I was taking writing classes or history classes, just ones that I was curious about because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I ended up taking a sociology class because I thought it sounded interesting. And my teacher, I don't remember what the question was or how I even answered it. But my professor at the time looked at me and he said, you should be a social worker. And (laughs) yeah, and I, I knew nothing about the profession. And I, in my head, I was like, like working for child protective services. Like that doesn't sound like something that I want to do. And after class, he came up to me and he was like, I'm serious. You should look into social work. And I looked, I looked more into the profession and it would just the ability to bounce around or to work at a school or work for child protective services or do counseling, or there was such a gamut of things that you could do from teaching. It was just very interesting to me because I get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. um, And I, I tend not to stay in positions or doing tasks where it's the same repetitive thing over and over again. And just to let everybody know, like I graduated from Pierce College with so many credits uh, <laughs> from classes because I didn't know what I wanted to be that when I went to the University of Washington for social work, I only had to take three classes to get a minor in criminal justice because so many transferred over. Yeah. And I my, da- I, my dad also told me because I really wanted to be a photographer. My dad told me you should um, think about having photography or art as a wonderful hobby that you can always go back to versus making it a profession. And that kind of really stuck with me too. Mm. So I think that that's why art to me is something I love doing, 
versus something I have to do, if that makes sense. Oh my goodness. And with a career like you've had, like how much do you need that beautiful outlet? Yeah. <laughs> right. I would imagine. I am yeah. not creative, but I wish I was. When did you meet your husband then and then kind of take on this whole other lifestyle and, you know, introduction to the military? Well, so my background, like I come from like a military family. So going like way back, I suppose, like my grand, my dad's dad was in the Navy during World War II. He was on the USS Essex and like he never really spoke about his time when he was in the military, but he, it always altered him and affected him for the rest of his life. Like I don't have memories of him sober and Mm. he he died when I was very young, like plagued by the experiences that he had. And then I had an uncle who was a ranger and a, an aunt that was a chief master sergeant in the Air Force and another uncle that was in the Air Force and I grew up outside of JVLM. So I think the military and supporting service members was always something that I wanted to do. Yeah. Even, even when I was at the University of Washington, um, on my first day of social work, uh, they went around the room and they asked, like, what population do you want to work with? And I, I said, the VA veterans. That was wow. always something that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I did my internship in the PTSD clinic at the VA at American Lake. I had a wonderful experience there meeting amazing people. And even after I graduated, I worked at the Old Soldiers Home in Ording, Washington. That's where I was working. I was an embedded social worker living or working in the dormitories of it's kind of like an apartment complex for elderly veterans. So I had like Rosie the Riveters. I had people from Vietnam. I had World War II guys, like incredible a whole, whole gamut that I was just immersed in listening to stories and being around some of the greatest people possible. And so when I met my husband, I was already working as a social worker, working with veterans and in all honesty, Barbara, like I never thought I'd be married. Uh, I just thought that I would like live my life. And when I met my husband, it was just like, man, this is the guy for me, like uh, (laughs) love of my life. And um, we dated long distance for two years before we eloped and got married at a Fayetteville detention center. Um, (laughs) mm -hmm. and just never look back I guess so I think I need to I think I need to quote like the great Amy Nash and say like my experience is my own and so I can't compare it to anyone else's experience but I think the hardest challenge for me as a spouse is like moving from Washington State where I had such a great support network like I live very close to all of my family and we do Sunday dinners and all sorts of stuff coming to North Carolina and experiencing life very independently. My husband has been gone for longer than he's actually when we've actually been together versus like that's deployments or TDYs. Like I'm very much by myself a lot of the time for our relationship. And that's, I know not unique to most military spouses, but I think the a challenge for me that I had was like the difference between feeling alone and being alone. And that was, yeah, and that was something that I had to learn, knowing that like I'm in a completely different culture, community, and it's a very, like, you really have to drive to get to most places in North Carolina. 
Yeah. Um, and it's just being an adult, it's challenging to kind of manage those feelings. Most of my friends were my husband's friends. So when my husband was gone, they were gone too. Oh, and yeah. just navigating that. Like, What is the difference, you think? What is the difference between being alone and feeling alone? Yeah, I think being alone is being by yourself, right? And feeling alone is you have other people that you can rely on, but you don't feel like you can ask them for help for whatever reason, like you feel like a burden or that you should be able to manage this or solve this. Yeah. Like when I lived on the West coast, I could manage most anything like hurricanes, Lahars, like I got natural disasters. That's fine. (laughs) But coming to the East coast, I remember um, the unit that we worked at or that we work at. uh, I had assessed three days after my husband deployed. Oh, wow. And so, the first like six months of being at that organization, I was new environment, like a new job, yes. alone, taking care of two dogs and a house and mowing the lawn for like the first time in my life, right? You know what's so weird? My husband was deployed when I started working there. <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> it is like... <laughs> I hear you on that. Yes. I even asked it's... them like, hey, I'm taking this job. Here's what it is. Here's where it is. Like, are you good with that? Because a lot is going to be different when you come home. Oh, my gosh. I know. Uh, <laughs> and I have like two stories that I can share about like the alone versus a, a feeling. Of oh, yes. Kind of thing. So start at the organization and um, there was a hurricane that was coming in, like work was let out early for people to prepare for this. And I was like, I've never been through a hurricane before. And the only thing that I know is like watching TV and there's like floods and people are sitting on the roof of their house waiting to be rescued. And I was like, oh my God, I'm right. <laughs> like worst case scenario in my brain. And at the time we lived in a house that had a slope. So the garage was downhill. And so I was like, oh my God, all the water's going to come rushing in. It's just going to flood the house. And I don't know what to do. So my husband was deployed. And I I remember I called him um, and I was like, I need sandbags. I don't know what to do. Like I need to prepare myself. And my husband said this in the most kind, factual way, but he was like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I can't do anything for you. And I remember being very upset with him and Mm. hurt. Right. Um, And in that moment, I felt not, I felt very alone. Right. And I felt very lonely because I didn't know who else to ask. And I remember thinking like, hanging up the phone, being like hurt and upset and like, all right, you just got to figure this out for yourself. And I remember packing like a go bag and dog food and like moving my car up the hill. So that way, if I needed to leave, I could. And I'm doing all these things to try to prepare for this hurricane. And um, it was 10 o'clock at night and there was a knock on the front door. And I was like, who is this? It's 10. (laughs) Like, this is terrible. And I answered the door and it was a guy from Pete's unit. And he had a truck full of sandbags and he it's 10 o'clock at night and he's helping me put sandbags in front of the garage. So that way it doesn't flood. And I just have like, I, even though he was so far away, he still supported me in the only way that he knew how. And, you know, and I think I felt very supported in that moment and I didn't feel alone anymore because 
I had this guy helping me move sandbags and I didn't know where they came from. And I had never met this person in, in my life, but he had shown up. Yeah. And I appreciated that. <laughs> you know, the other story is that I think it empathizes or it allows me to like empathize and have more compassion for spouses too. And like the notification process, uh, if anything does happen. Yeah. So I'd been at the unit for, I want to say like maybe a month, month and a half. And it was a beautiful spring day. And I remember driving back from the commissary on a Saturday and I got a text message from another spouse. Uh, she sent me a text message and she said, I heard what happened to your husband. I hope he's okay. And like my heart sank. And I remember calling her right after that. And she didn't answer. What? And like, I felt so alone and panicked and I didn't know what to do. And I immediately called my husband and he didn't answer. Hmm. And I remember going back to the home and I'm like, I'm unpacking groceries and I didn't know who to call. Cause at that time I was like a new person at the organization, like who, right. And all of our friends are deployed or gone. And I just, I just did like basic stuff, unpack the groceries. And I remember texting her again, like, what is happening? I need more information. Like I have no idea. And she responded and she said, I'm sorry that. Uh, no one has contacted you, but I don't really know a lot of the details. I just hope that he's okay. And I was so angry and I felt so alone. And like, what do you know that I don't know? A couple hours later, my husband texted me and he said, no matter what you hear, I'm okay. He had been in a, there was an explosion that happened that he had been negatively impacted by. And he was in isolation and on like concussion protocol and whatnot. And I just remember as I'm unpacking groceries, like feeling very alone, not knowing who to call or like what support because I didn't have any information. Yeah. What I needed in the moment. Right. And just waiting for the knock on the door from like a commander. Mm. Mm-hmm. And like in those moments, like having to focus on something else and being able to manage the feelings that you experience and just waiting for whatever needs to come. Yeah. And I think those are, two experiences as a spouse that's like unique where there's always the potential for something like that to happen and having that network of people or supports and knowing who you can rely on yeah will help you in those moments but it was a it was hard to like ask for support or to talk about the things that I was going through with people that were around me because you don't want to burden them because they may be feeling something very similar to you Right. Right. It was just, it was just hard. Yeah. There's a lot of internal barriers. I think like thought barriers to reaching out, even like you are a mental health professional and a very good one and you know, all the benefits and even you right. Put in the same situation, have to jump over those barriers and have to remind yourself of like some of those thoughts are just false. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's crazy. There's like a million questions I want to ask you, Maria. What did you, were you going to say something? No, go for it. Okay. You are simultaneously having your own experiences while helping other people. You're holding this. It's almost like this holy space, right? Um, For people to come to you in, you know, sometimes it's something little, but sometimes it's really their most painful um, or difficult or most isolating alone times. What keeps you going? 
when you have tough days and still like available and willing to serve other people? For me, I've always considered it to be a privilege to support someone in their most vulnerable moment. I am around people who, whether that's active duty military, I also work in hospice. So I, I help people at end of life as well. And that is a very vulnerable time period for family and for the person whose life is ending. And so I've always seen it as a something that I cherish very much to be with somebody when they are at their most vulnerable or on their on their worst day Mm -hmm. and to be able to not necessarily like fix but be able to be with them as they walk that journey to me is something unique and special and I have some of the most amazing memories and moments that I've in my life have been shared in the most vulnerable crises or dark spaces just Mm -hmm the ability to be with somebody in that moment and that they trust you that much to hear those words or just to hold space for them. So I like, I find that to be the ultimate privilege as a provider to be with someone. Yeah. So those moments themselves are the motivators. Okay. That's awesome. I guess the second question I have about that and your work is it gives you this very much behind the scenes. Again, you're already living it. So you get the behind the scenes, whether you go to work or not that day. But it gives you a behind the scenes of the struggles, you know, of our military members and their families, spouses, considering and this is a big question. So I, I just didn't know how to ask it in a smaller way. But considering all you've learned so far, like what are some kind of top pieces of advice, you know, or resources that that you would recommend? I think that normalizing asking for help before you actually need to. Mm. And and that was something that Amy and I would talk about a a lot. She would always say, ask for help before the house is on fire and burning down. And often, I think oftentimes people only ask for, come to, for support when there's a crisis. And I, in active yes. duty, there's more of like the stigma for getting help because what could potentially happen in my career? What is this person going to say? Um, how is this going to affect me moving forward? And I think the tides are changing, especially yeah. within our unit. Like the ability right. to ask for help sooner has changed. So we're more preventative in some ways, not in all ways, but in some right. ways. But I think any career, active duty, or whatever that is, there's always going to be stressors that are going to cause us to fray. Right. And learning those healthy, healthy coping mechanisms or learning that you can just talk to somebody about things I, earlier on is, I think, really important. It takes a lot of courage to recognize that there's something going on. And it, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and talk to somebody about the deepest, darkest things that you have. Right. Um, but I think recognizing that there's support if you do need it is is important. And I think that's the biggest thing for active duty right now is the willingness to come mm-hmm. forward sooner mm-hmm. versus later. Yeah. And I've had it go both ways, right? Like guys stop by when it's just a little something like nagging them, you know, um, and then the other way around, right? Where it's literally that it's the end of the rope. It's Friday, mm-hmm. 430. And they are scared to go home with themselves, right? What do you think is 
something aside from the career implications that keeps people from just reaching out earlier, just having a conversation, just saying like, dang, I don't feel good today. Yeah. I honestly think it's that one, the idea of being a burden or being weak. So those are yeah. own internal messages that we send ourselves. Right. But two, I think even bigger one is the the fear of judgment. Mm. What is she going to think of me or what are others going to think of me if they know mm. that I'm talking to someone? Right. And I, I think the fear of judgment prevents us from doing a lot of things that could be beneficial. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Like the place that we work that you still work at, everyone has been assessed and selected and the operators there, they've done it twice, right? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> like cream of the crop. And because our team took that preventive, you know, type of outlook, right? Like we want to keep guys performing well and living well for as long as possible for the things we can control. And what you started to notice is that the people that were most successful were the people that were taking advantage of the resources, right? Absolutely. And they had better stress management. They could solve problems. They were sleeping better. There were so many benefits to just being able to just talk or get some good feedback or some tips and tricks on how to manage all of those things. You're, you're not wrong, Barb. I, I think there's a lot of longevity when it comes to using the resources that are there versus like suffering in silence or alone. Yeah. This is kind of a curveball, but I just want to bring it up because it keeps coming up in conversation, Maria. The power of talking. Yeah. The power of talking. I I mean, just it's insane. And we work with really high performers. They're going to they're going to research the heck out of what is the fastest point from A to B? What's the most efficient, right? Like what new things are out on the market that aren't going to get me in trouble, right? But it always comes back to conversations they're having. Yeah. I think sometimes I will go for walks with people and I don't say much. I'll ask a question here or there, but I just listen. Yeah. And at the end of the walk, I'll be like, was that helpful? Like what, what was the most beneficial part of our time together today? And people will just oftentimes say just the ability just to say things out loud. Yeah. And just to get them off my chest. And I'll say just to you, like, how do you feel after that? And they're like, oh, I feel lighter. Right. And the fact that they have a a physical reaction just to saying what was weighing on them. Um, And then they're like, oh, I'm good now. I can keep going. It's like, okay, like I'm here if you need me. But oftentimes that happens all the time where I'm just listening. Right. Yeah. The power of talking, just getting it out in a judge-free zone. Yes. Amazingly beneficial. It goes back to that, like being alone versus feeling alone thing of course when you're having a conversation you you don't that's that's connecting right that you feel heard and listened to and 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 no guilt or shame over then neither of those things are are present and it's it's just incredibly powerful i don't even know how to put words to it but it just comes keeps coming up in conversation so you have i'm kind of switching switching gears here but you have and it might just come from like the way that your creative brain works but you have this beautiful skill of weaving story 
into your practice. Yes. And I would love if you would tell us a story that you think might, you know, we, we might, it might be good for us to hear. I will tell you a story and I'll tell you quickly, like why I started telling stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. It started in hospice because my patients would pass away within six months or less. And oftentimes it was two weeks. And so to get them to feel okay with dying and even their families to feel supported, I would often tell stories um, because I would visit them once a week for like an hour or so. Uh, So I really started telling stories based on like acceptance and commitment therapy. So I use a lot of the stories from that modality as well. Mm-hmm. My my favorite one is the story that I called the bucket story. And I'll tell you that. And I've used that a lot in hospice. And yeah, okay. It goes like this. So um, once upon a time, there was a woman who lived by herself in a very humble hut. The walls were made of mud and the roof was thatched. And every morning without fail, she would walk the same path to collect water. She would use a pole that she put on her shoulders and on either end of the pole was a rope and tied to the end of the rope were two buckets. On one side, the bucket was new and shiny. On the other side of the pole, the bucket was old and dented and it had a crack in it where it would leak water. But without fail, she would walk down to the river near her house and she would scoop up water. It was very precious. She used that water from cooking, bathing, drinking, every drop count. One day as she was walking down to the river, the old bucket looked at her and said, My dear woman, I'm old and dented. It's time to replace me. I leak half your precious water out before you get home. I'm no good anymore. The woman said nothing. She slowly made her way down to the river and she scooped up water. On her way back to her humble hut, she said, My dear Bucket, if you look on your side of the path where you slowly leak water, there is grass and flowers growing. They grow because of your imperfections. On the side of the path where the Shiny new bucket is, it's dirt, desolate. So despite your perceived imperfections, your dents and cracks, please know that you are perfect just the way that you are. It's my story. I love it. I tell people that regardless of the things that you've done or didn't do, your perceived imperfections to a lot of people, you are enough. Right. Thank you for that. Isn't Maria's voice calming? Couldn't you just (laughs) listen to her all day long? (laughs) Okay. Let's say that there's, there's someone, you know, listening to your story and it has impacted them. Just like, just like the story that you told, I believe everyone has, a purpose that is beautiful and unique to to them. And so many times, you know, as I have more and more conversations, 
I'm finding that people are most fulfilled when their life is impacting a life or lives around them. So they're impacted by your story and they feel that call inside of them, but they don't know where or how to get started, like to take that first step. What would you suggest? I think because I came to social work in a very roundabout way, I think understanding your values and your why is important. Like you would Mm -hmm. always talk to operators about knowing your why, because when you're faced in a challenging situation, it can help motivate you when you reflect on what your why is. And I think that our values reinforce that, right? So living a life that's meaningful based on what you value. And I, I really value like teamwork and supporting other people. Like most of the things that I do, I do because it's going to benefit someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not the type of person that wants to be in front of the crowd. I will always be in the back. Right. And I think social work allowed me to do that, like support other people. And I'm, I'm never the one that will take credit for it because it's the person doing the hard work and knowing that I value that. And that's, that's really my why. So I think that's important of anyone that wants to get started is just kind of knowing what, what's the main force behind what you want to do. And if that is service, it might be social worker, it might be psychology being like you, Barb, but allowing yourself to know that will keep you motivated as you're going through like the education system or applying for jobs. I also love that you said that your path to social work was roundabout. Yeah. Let me just tell you. I think there's a perception out there that like most people know what they want to do when they're three years old and then they just like spend their life going after that thing. And I just think it's false. (laughs) I just don't think that's real. (laughs) Yeah, because I wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to work for National Geographic. And I spent hours in dark rooms and I sold a couple of photographs, but like that's nowhere clear to close to what I've found a passion and reward in. It is a passion of mine, but it's not as rewarding as social work mm. ever is, you know? Yeah. Like watching someone change and helping them at their lowest point is will always be more rewarding than taking a photograph for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've taken up enough of your time today. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with? I'm just thankful for you, I'm thankful for your parents. I don't know them, but I would tell them thank you if I had the chance to meet them. Because I think hearing about your experiences, already knowing like the the beauty that is Maria, and then getting to hear kind of how that was shaped is, is so neat. But thank you for what you do. Thanks for um, supporting your husband and his work. That's not easy. And, um, and his mission. Thanks for supporting all of the people that you are supporting, um, not only at work, but I'm sure it happens outside of work, just knowing you. <laughs> anyway, any parting thoughts, Maria? I like to end things with quotes. I'll give you a short quote. Um, okay. Man is pushed by drive, but pulled by values. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Barbara. I appreciate you. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another incredible episode of In the Name of Service. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And of course, feel free to share with those you feel would like to be inspired. Have a difference maker in your life that you'd like to see featured? Reach out to Dr. Barb Thompson at in the name of service at gmail.com. 
We'll see you next time.